Hello and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. Today we have guest speaker Thor Madsen with us, who is a professor of New Testament ethics and philosophy of the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. By starting in the book of Matthew, he will teach us more about the authority of Jesus. How can we see that Jesus had authority, and why was he even rejected because of this? And what does his authority mean for our salvation? Well, listen now to find out more. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. I um, did not expect to be able to, uh, to preach today, but I'm very glad to do it and glad to see all of you. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, and as you're finding that, I'm going to have us begin by reflecting on something that Jesus says in chapter 7, but you look at chapter 8 and just think about this for a minute in chapter 7. Um, the Sermon on the Mount ends with <clears throat> this statement about what Jesus has said. Verse 28 of chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So you have this interesting word, authority, and it's a word that means, uh, it, it has an association with kingship, with with. Uh, power and right to rule. And if you're looking at that, you notice that the crowds, when they hear Jesus say what he does in the Sermon on the Mount, they're amazed at what he says, but they're also in some ways astonished at what he says. They're surprised. And there's a little bit, if I can say it this way, there's a little bit of shock in their reaction to it. They don't know if it's okay for Jesus to have said what he says. I'll give you one example of this. In verse 21 of chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So when you, when you see that the first time, one of the responses that is pretty normal to have when you read those verses is, you mean a person can do all these things. If you look at it again, prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do many mighty works. A person can do that and still not be saved. That's the first thing you look at. You're like, wait a minute. (laughs) Those are miraculous things. Uh, Judas did all that. Everything you read there, he did that, but was still separated from God. That's, that's part of the difficulty. But listen to these same verses again, and I'm going to read them with a different emphasis. And then this will bring out the reason why the crowds might well have thought, I don't know if that's okay for Jesus to say. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, who, you workers of lawlessness. Do you catch the, the difference now? Jesus is saying to this crowd of people, on the day of judgment, when, when you face God, I'm actually the person you're going to be facing. <laughs> you understand, right? Jesus looks like any other person. He, he doesn't have a halo over his head, okay? <laughs> he just looks like any other person. And he says to them, on the day of judgment, when you face God Almighty, I'm actually the person you're going to be facing, do you see why the crowds would, <laughs> what? <laughs> you can't say that, right? You understand. He taught as one having authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. It's more than just the fact that he says different things about the interpretation of the Old Testament. True, he does do that. But it's also what he says about himself, in chapter 5, Jesus makes a number of statements like this. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said, I say to you. Right? You remember that? Interesting fact. In this time and place, when a, when a person speaking says, I say, I say, I say, what they mean is, I decree. Do you understand this word? Like a king. I decree, right? No wonder the crowds are thinking, what? You can't do that. <laughs> you can't say that. Like you, who we say in, in, uh, in America, this question people ask, who do you think you are? Huh? Right? Who, who do you think you are? That's the question that the Sermon on the Mount leaves you with. Who does Jesus think he is? And the answer comes in chapter 8. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount as one who has authority. He teaches as somebody who believes that he is a king. And the question that you should have when you read the Sermon on the Mount is, well, I understand that he says those things, but can he do things that help me to believe that he has the right to say those things? And Jesus does that in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is a chapter in which he will do miracles. And the purpose of those miracles is to show you he has that authority that he has claimed in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look with me at chapter 8, several different kinds of miracles will happen, and they're all to show you that he has that authority. Look at what it says, just beginning at verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. That will happen in the Gospels, right? He, <laughs> Jesus will do so many amazing things that large crowds will follow him wherever he goes. Now, eventually, you know he's going to say some very difficult things, and the crowds will... <laughs> They'll leave, right? Eventually they will do that. But now it's just miracles. So they're very drawn to him. Large crowds followed him. 
And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he did something nobody would ever do. He touched him, stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So just bring out a couple of things. Number one, you know, it makes sense for us to think about disease, right? Okay, because you understand Many people are, are, and for good reason, are afraid of COVID, right? I mean, if you get that, that could be a problem. Now, for most people, maybe not. But a lot of people, yes. Leprosy is worse. There's no way out of that. You get leprosy at that time and in that place, you don't, you don't make it. It progressively, over time, takes away your physical appearance, and it takes away the feeling in your hands and in your feet. You can't feel. What that will mean is that when this leper comes to Jesus, it's more than just a problem of his skin being <laughs> whitened, right, by the disease. He would have had injuries all over his hands and feet because he can't feel pain. Lepers will do things like this. They will pick up a hot object and they don't know it's hot, and they burn themselves. They don't know it's burning their skin. They'll walk around in that time and place. Their feet will hit a stone or something like that. They'll have an injury. They don't know they're injured. So this is a person, I mean to tell you, he, he's looking very bad. Do you understand? Like, you don't touch this guy. Jesus, with no fear, touches him. And instead of becoming unclean, he makes that guy clean, as he does with everybody here. We were, we were sickened by sin, and Jesus touches and heals. If you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper understands that, and Jesus heals him. Notice what he says in this command in verse 4. He tells the leper, don't tell anybody what has happened. And I, this is going to be a confusing thing because you would think, right? Uh, why wouldn't Jesus want everybody to know? And the answer is this, because they don't know everything yet. They, they don't know about the cross. They don't know about the cost of following Jesus. They just know it's great to have Jesus around, right? At this point, it's all just gifts that come at you. They don't know yet about the cross and the cost of following Jesus. And if they go out and tell people about the Jesus who heals, who feeds, that's only half of the gospel. That's why he says, not yet. Don't tell yet. Look at the next verse, verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, only give the command, and my servant will be healed. 
Look at this explanation. Look at what the centurion understands. Verse 9. For I too am a man under, hear this word, look at it, authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Then verse 13 And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Why is the centurion's faith amazing to Jesus? Well, it's because the centurion knows something about Jesus that most people don't know. Here's what the centurion says to him. You don't need to come to my house because you have authority and I know why you do. The centurion uses this example. He says, okay, you you see that soldier right there? Yeah. (laughs) If I tell that soldier to do something, he's going to do whatever I say. And the reason why is I'm under the authority of Caesar. And because I'm under Caesar's authority, if I tell that soldier to do something, he's going to do it because to disobey me is the same thing as disobeying Caesar. Right? Right? So he says, it, it's fine. You just have to give the word. And Jesus, the centurion realizes that Jesus is under the authority of the Father. And that's why the disease will be healed. He understands that. That's an amazing thing when you think about a centurion. Somebody that we would normally think, well, you know, that's, this is a, a pagan, right? He... <laughs> He's a Gentile. He, why would he know anything about this? And he does. He's under authority. You see in verse 13 that the servant is healed immediately. I'm going to come back to those verses I skipped in just a minute. But let's continue by looking at verses 14 and following. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Boy, do we see that word differently now, don't we? Do you all read that verse, a reference to a fever, differently now than you did two years ago? You see that? You're thinking, if I have a fever, that could be a problem in a way much different than I ever thought it could be. Uh Uh-huh. Verse 15, he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Instantaneous healing, just like this. She gets up. Imagine somebody right now, maybe you know somebody right now in the hospital with COVID, right? They can't, you don't know what's going to happen to them. What if somebody came in and just touched her or him and they just get up and go, go? That's the power of God. But it continues. Look at this, verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. Many. Demons now. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took away our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's from Isaiah 53. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. But think about what Jesus has just done. I'll give you an example of how to visualize this. Okay. Think of the largest hospital in Vienna. I don't know what that is. Okay, you do. In the United States, 
We have these hospitals that are as big as some of these buildings over here. You know, they're huge, right? Uh, imagine somebody who looks just like Christy, Pastor Christy, just normal guy, walks into the hospital, starts touching people. And by the end of the day, there's not a single person left in that hospital. Nobody. Everybody walks out the front door, doesn't matter how sick they are, doesn't matter what they have, whatever their disease is, everybody walks out. One person comes and touches. That's what happened in this verse. Now you see that we read these verses so often, right, that it's easy for us to go, yeah, you know, Jesus heals people, right? We get too... (laughs) Maybe too familiar with these verses. We don't really see what they mean. But what Matthew is talking about is an outpouring from Jesus of divine power on a level that nobody had ever seen before. You might say that for three years, Jesus just banished disease from Israel for three years. That's what happened. And you have a reference to Isaiah 53, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But it's very clear, is it not, that when Jesus taught as one having authority in the Sermon on the Mount, now you see him doing what someone with authority should be able to do. He can back up his claim to have that kind of authority. Look at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Quite a a demand, yes? Jesus saying to him, you follow me, it's going to be costly to you. There's going to be a price on that. And what you should be thinking when you read those verses, I'll say more about those in a minute, but just now when you think about those verses again, you should be asking yourself the question, does he have the right to do that? Does he have authority to make that kind of claim on people? Does he? Look at what it says in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Verse 25, and they went... And woke him, saying, save us, Lord. (laughs) We are perishing. Stop right there and just think about this for a minute. These disciples are used to being on the water. This is their normal life. They do this all the time. It's how they make their living, or at least quite a few of them. And you have a storm so violent that they believe they're going to die. So violent, they believe they're, they're going to die. I, I, my um, cousin, one of my cousins, he, he's a pilot. He flies planes. 
He told me one time he was in a small plane. <laughs> you know, one of those little planes that maybe holds six people like this. And he was flying one day, and, and he, he got, unfortunately, he got into a thunderstorm. And he told me one time, he said it was very unexpected. I, I did not, I, if I'd known it was there, I could have gone around it. But I didn't. And he, um, he said, there are two things that will make a plane crash. Thunderstorms and ice. Those are the two. Thunderstorms and ice. And he said it was the, when he was, <laughs> there was nothing to do but fly. Like he couldn't get around it. And he said when he was flying in the plane, it was so violent, the storm. He, he could barely control the plane. And he said, I, I, was, I was sure I was going to die. Because it was so violent, and his, you know his seatbelt was just <laughs> right. It was almost, he felt like it would break. And the plane, he said, there were times in which I didn't know whether I was right side up or, or, or upside down. I couldn't. It was so bad. And when he got through it, he, he said, I, I just couldn't believe the wings were still on the plane. He had flown thousands of hours, thousands of hours in the air. He does this professionally. And you think about that. I, I told him, I said, if you were afraid, I, I would have just passed out. I, I just, you know, I can't. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I'm flying on a plane any little bit, I'm like, <laughs> I don't like it. Okay. But it's like that here. It's a storm that bad that even the disciples are thinking, this is it, okay? And they get to him and they say, we are perishing. Verse 26, and he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? <laughs> then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? Yeah, good question. Remember the crowds at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? What sort of man is this who teaches like that? Right? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Here's what the disciples are thinking. When you look in the Old Testament, just ask this question. Who controls the wind and the waves? Who does that? Well, you know, right, the very first chapter of the Bible, what happens is God creates. And he creates just by speaking, right? That phrase over and over again, and God said, and God said, and God said, all the way through. And what, is, what does everything do? Nature, nature does exactly what God says, not only that, but you see the timing, and there was evening, and there was morning. There was evening, and there was morning. You know what that means? Things happen when God wants them to, and they stop when he wants them to. You ever have that, like you're watching a movie, and you have a, a remote control device, and you go play, stop, play, stop. That's Genesis 1. Play, stop. God has complete control over nature. Play, 
stop, play, stop. That's deliberate. You can see why the Egyptians had no chance. Right? <laughs> you know that's going to happen. Remember the Red Sea, how the dry ground appears? That's what happens in Genesis 1. God says, let the dry ground appear, and what happens? Right? Let the ground teem with creatures. It's exactly what happens in Genesis 1. God has total control over nature. This is the point then. When the disciples see Jesus going shh to the wind and the waves, what does that tell you about Jesus? He's God. See, they look at, nobody can do this, right? Nobody just gets up from a nap in the middle of a storm, says, shh, and then goes back to sleep. Nobody (laughs) except the one who has authority. Do you see that? Keep going. Look at this now. When he came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass by that way. And behold, they cried out. Notice how they answer the disciples' question. What kind of man is this? Look at the, the demons answer that question. What, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So think about this for a minute. I don't know about you, but the first few times I saw that passage when, when the demons say, send us in the, into the pigs, okay, I don't know about you, but I, I, when I see that, I'm kind of wondering why Jesus agreed to that. You know, why does he, oh, okay, sure, into the pigs. <laughs> I mean, Jesus could do anything, right? I mean, why, why does he do that? Here's the answer. That's for the disciples to see. That's for them. Because what that means is when he casts out the demons and the demons go into that herd of pigs, the disciples see how destructive those demons really are. When the whole herd of pigs throws itself into the sea, you know those demons are evil. They're destructive. They're powerful. And Jesus just says, go. And what that means is the demons do exactly what Jesus commands that they will do. Back then when when somebody was possessed by a demon, people thought there's no hope for that person. Nothing ever happens that's good to that person. Maybe you know somebody in your life or you see somebody, my goodness, these days you see it on the news, right? Very evil people. And you're thinking to yourself, there's no way that person could ever be different. There's no way that person could ever be godly. There's no way that person could ever, they're going this way. There's no way they could ever turn and go this way. You're thinking that. And Jesus, just like that. That's all it takes. He just gives the word. 
and it's done. We've prayed even this morning, right, for people that we know are evil. Vladimir Putin, we know. <laughs> okay. this, he is evil, right? We know that. And the, the power of God is the only thing that would turn him around. Nothing else. And Jesus spoke a word over two demon-possessed people, and they're healed immediately. Does Jesus have the authority to teach as he did in the Sermon on the Mount? Yes, he does. You know how you know? Because of everything he's just done here in chapter 8. But there's another side to chapter 8, and I want to bring this out to you as I close. Just think about this for a minute. That passage, there's a a brief reference um, after he heals the many. You see it in chapter 8. Look at verse 17 again. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took away our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is a, a quotation from Isaiah 53. I just want to bring this out to you and let you hear it. And I'll come back to, to Matthew 8. But listen to this for a minute. Verse 1, just get the context. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Right? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Remember how I said it? Like Jesus just looks like any other person. Okay? No beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. Think about that. They're like, can't look at him. Mm, on the cross, right? From, they hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs. This is the passage that Matthew quotes. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now you think about what happens to Jesus in chapter 8. And there are passages here that I've skipped over, but now I'm coming back to them. The first one is this. Verse 11, or just last part of verse 10. Truly I tell you, remember the centurion, right? He shows this faith. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why would that happen to the people of to the people of Israel? Why why is this going to happen? Not all of them, but a lot of them. Why? It's because they reject him. They reject him, and that too is proof that he's Messiah. That too is evidence that Jesus is Messiah. Is that he's rejected? Just like Isaiah said he would be. Here's another example. Look at it. Verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, 
teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds great, right? We'd think, sure, (laughs) Jesus will have that happen. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And do you know why he doesn't? Why doesn't he have somewhere to lay his head? Answer, no one offers. No one offers. No one cares. They're like, yeah. (laughs) Okay, he heals all these people, and at the end of the day, he's left standing there all alone. Everybody goes back to his house, and nobody offers him a place to lay his head. That's rejection. Do you see that? Here's another example. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Why does he want to bury his father? Let me tell you what's happened. The father has not just died. That's, that's not what this is. This is the second phase of a burial. Okay, In the ancient world, what would happen is if someone died... They would, be, they would be wrapped, just like Joseph does with the body of Jesus, and they would be put in a tomb. Then a year later, the bones would be gathered up and put in a box, a, a bone box, an ossuary, and then that would be the burial. That's what this guy wants to do. It's not that his father just then died. His father died a year ago, and he's saying, Jesus, I would follow you, but I've got, I'm going to do this other thing first. Right? It's not that important, and that's rejection. And in rejecting Jesus that way, that too shows you he is the Messiah. Third example, look at verse 34. Jesus he casts out the herd of Uh, casts out the demons from these two guys, and instead of of welcoming him, look what happens. And behold, all the city came out to meet him, to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him not to stay, but to leave. In effect, imagine that. Somebody coming up to Jesus, falling on his knees. (laughs) Okay. Hands like this. Jesus, yes, please go away. Please leave. Please go away. And when they do that, they show just as much as any other thing that happens in this chapter that he is the Messiah because he's rejected just like Isaiah said he would be. Do you see the, the miracles and the rejection? Both come together and tell you one simple story. Jesus is the Messiah. He taught as one having authority. He acts as one having authority. And he's also rejected as one having authority. We do not serve a Savior whose bones are in a grave. We don't. He rose He lives today. He commands all people to repent and place their trust in him. It's not just an invitation. It's a command. You're commanded to trust in him. And he has the authority to issue that command because he is the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at the power that is shown in this chapter. We marvel at the the healing 
the power over demons, over disease, over nature. And Father, we know what it shows. We know that it shows that Jesus is Messiah, that he is the king, that he rose and he lives today. And that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We rejoice in that, Father. We thank you for that great good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.